1: Coming up this hour, with all that's going on in the news, let's talk about how God works in the midst of our grief and pain. And then we're joined by Dr. Katie Butler, author of Glimmers of Grace. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, friends, welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. So glad to have you with us today. We've been talking a lot Rightly so. We've been talking a lot this week about all this going on in Afghanistan mm-hmm. and Haiti yeah. and COVID-19 and, uh, you know, everything in Chicago and the violence that happened there over the weekend. Yeah. And and it's just gets it gets really difficult, right? Like w- Certainly. one of the one of the. Um, Pleasures of this show, doing a show like this, but also one of the struggles is you have to kind of stay with the news. And sometimes, I don't know how you feel about this, the news just feels overwhelming. Certainly, it's overwhelming.
2: You open up another news story and you go, Oh, there's so much heartache and suffering in the world. And you don't want to, as we talk about in the show a lot, we don't want to be like naive or blind to it. We want to enter into the world's suffering, but it can feel like a lot at times.
1: Yeah. And that's not even to go with people's personal suffering out there. You've, you know, you're struggling physically. Struggling uh emotionally, whatever else it might be. And uh for us as Christ followers, it raises this question: where's God? Where's Mm, what is God up to? Where what is going on? And we've talked many times. You wrote a book about the concept of lament, yeah. Uh, and and kind of where's God and sitting in our pain. But I was. Uh, with that question in mind, I wanted to start there, almost like it Not where you know it's not like a well. Let's get past Afghanistan. <laughs> nope, that's going to be lingering, yeah, and right. COVID nineteen is going to be lingering. But right. I did want a little bit of perspective as we start here. And I just came across a blog post. Sometimes you just find random things, and I'm like, oh, that's what I needed to read uh by an author named Sarah Condon at Mockingbird. Uh she wrote one called A Vision for the Brokenhearted. Grief can be unpredictable, but so is healing. And people could go read it, but the the, the background of the story is she lost both of her elderly parents, basically within a quick uh very close to each other. And wow. she talks about um reading a, uh, being in an empty church and seeing a stained glass window that says, blessed are the broken hearted. And she Mm. wrestled with that. And then another one says, blessed are the pure in heart. And she starts to link those together. But I just want to read the last paragraph and let you comment on this. In light of all that's going on in our world and in individual lives right now, she wrote this. Life is one brutal lesson in learning that nothing is linear. Not childhood, not parenting, not marriage, not sanctification, and definitely not grief. But it is not shapeless either. So much of my loss and failed ambitions are really just cross-shaped, where the purity of God's love meets the brokenness of my heart again and again Mm. and again. Healing never happens the way we want it to. It can't. Mm. I just thought that that was a wonderful picture. When you hear that as someone you've you've not only had struggles in your life but you like I said wrote a book on lament and struggle. What do you think about what I just read to you there?
2: Yeah, I you know, it makes me think of when I was in kind of the middle of my deep grief. I can remember thinking I wanted God to answer my prayers in a very specific way mm-hmm. and meet me in a very specific way and he never did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> never. Not what does that look like? What do you mean? He never well, did?
2: let me let me let me go on. Okay. What he did was like blow the doors off of the ways mm. that I was praying and met my met my needs and my longings in ways that only God can because he knew what was underlying them. So this is a this is a <sighs> crazy example. I've shared it on the show before um and it it is i realize it's kind of outlandish but i'm going to share it anyway cuz this is a picture of all of the many things that god did in that season but one of the one of the heartaches of our season of grief as a family was that my you know when my cousin cameron was killed he never had any kids mm. and so my aunt and uncle were devastated that their loss like their dream of grandkids was forever lost and and, you know, Cameron and I grew up together. We we had dreams of our kids playing together. And so knowing that our kids would never hang out like that, that was part of a layer of grief, right? Sometimes you don't know all the things you're grieving yeah. for. You're grieving for hopes and dreams that don't come to pass as well as the loss of the person. Anyway, as crazy as this sounds, in the middle of our grief, a woman showed up at my aunt and uncle's doorstep. I mean, not, you know, metaphorically. And she had two babies and they're Cameron's babies. And it's a mess. Like you go, Cameron, what were you doing? I don't understand all. I don't understand this. Why do you have two secret babies that none of us know about? But let me tell you that those kids have become my kids' cousins. We were just together on our vacation. They spend almost every weekend with my aunt and uncle, calling them Nana and Papa. And so like the Lord restores our fortunes. And that is wild. And that is bewildering. And that is an outside of the box story. But you pray for certain things and then, God just explosively answers them in ways that you go, Lord, I don't get this. This is crazy and insane. And yet, look at these two little miracles that you've put into our lives in the middle of our heartache. And I think that's what I mean. Grief is not linear. The Lord is bigger than we could ever even imagine. And in situations that seem so horrific and confusing, like God shows up. And there's no way to explain that except to just get on your knees and praise Him.
1: Okay, I'm not sure I've ever heard you share that story. Oh, you haven't
2: heard that? Oh, okay. I
1: thought I had. That is ridiculous. That is ridiculous. Crazy.
2: I know. Man, it's insane. I, I, I,
1: you just told it. I was like, what is not where I expected that? Yeah. And I to know. Go. And I
2: think I say it so frankly now because we've lived with it for a while. But I mean, the first time I saw these boys, they look exactly like Cameron. I bawled. I mean, I literally I mean, I'm a dramatic person anyway. But the first day <laughs> I met them, I fell to my knees and started sobbing like it because they look so much like Cameron and my memories of him growing up. And the fact that their mom is the most generous soul in the world. And she has like really become a part of our family. I I mean, you know, of course there's questions like, Cameron, what were you doing? (laughs) There's there's (laughs) questions that need to be answered. (laughs) You know, but at the end of the day, those questions will be answered one day in heaven. Right now we just go, Lord, you have given us two miracles in the shape of Cameron that meet our needs in ways we couldn't have ever expected. And that's how God shows up in grief and pain.
1: Oh, that's a crazy story. So what would you say with a little bit of time we have left uh, to the people who are in the midst of it right now? They are just immersed in the grief and they're like, I don't I don't see God anywhere. Like part of your story there seems to be like, keep leaning in, keep leaning in, keep praying. What is the call?
2: That's 100 percent what I would say. Do not be afraid to run to God with all of your questions, all of your anger, all of your just raw emotions. Lament in scripture is described as an impolite plea. You are literally talking to God as if God is your enemy, which feels very counterintuitive to us who have grown up in evangelical Christianity. But the Mm -hmm. fact is, scripture has uh, more lament psalms than praise psalms, more uh, moments when people are crying out to God in their frustration than they are in their praise. And the reality is we have a God who invites that because we have a God who wants intimacy with us, Mm -hmm. who wants a real relationship with us. And if we can continue to lean in, cry out to him on the other side of that heartache, that pain, that frustration is a realer faith than you have ever known before, but you can't
1: give up. You've got to keep leaning in. That's such a good word. I wanted to start there today. The the article I referenced is called A Vision for the Broken Hearted. It's over at Mockingbird at mbird.com. Uh, there's some crazy stories, kind of like what Aubrey just shared there of what this author, Sarah Condon, experienced in the grief for, over her parents, kind of the uh, vision she had of them in heaven. Like, it's just a powerful story. Uh, and, and with so much grief and pain going on around us, kind of corporately, but also individually, I wanted to start there today to encourage you to keep going. Lean in. Uh, God is still present. God is still good. God is still active and we can trust him. So that's, right. uh, that's what we want to do where we want to start today. But coming up next, Dr. Katie Butler author of Glimmers of Grace, A Doctor's Reflections on Faith, Suffering, and the Goodness of God. She's gonna join us to talk about that next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey friends, welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. And Aubrey and I are thrilled to be joined by the author of a book called Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflection on faith, suffering, and the goodness of God. That is Dr. Katie Butler. Katie, thanks so much for joining us today.
3: Oh, Brian and Aubrey, thank you so much for having me
1: on. It's a real privilege. Yeah, it's absolutely our pleasure. Katie, before we jump into your book, which looks wonderful, mm-hmm. before we do that, uh, why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they can get to know you a little bit better?
3: Sure. So I've been a resident of New England and New York City most of my life. I am a trauma surgeon and critical care specialist by training uh, who came to the Lord through my work in medicine. He brought me to himself through some suffering I witnessed. Uh, And about six years ago, uh, he also then drew me away from medicine to homeschool my kids. And so for the past few years, I've been blessed to be home with them, teaching them in the ways of the Lord, and I've fallen into a writing ministry. So I write for the Gospel Coalition and Desiring God, and God's blessed me with the opportunity to have a, write a couple of books about um, topics of faith and medicine and how they intersect. Mm. Wow, that's so fascinating, Katie. I would
2: love to hear more about your journey. Can, uh, we want to talk about your book, Glimmers of Grace, but I would just love to hear how did the Lord begin to move you from being in the medical
3: world to now being a homeschool mom and writer? Yeah, it was never what I had planned
4: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: at, at all. It was a lot of training and I loved my work. Uh, you know, but it was a job that kept me away from home 70 to 90 hours a week. Mm. Uh, and my, young, my um, son when he was about three years old, he was having some horrendous difficulties and it turns out he had some sensory processing disorders. Mm -hmm. And so was just having meltdowns on a daily basis, just from the daily stuff of living. And so while I loved my work and thought that it was my calling and it was for a season, I think sometimes we get so pigeonholed into thinking that what we do has to be forever, but Mm -hmm. God we see throughout the whole Bible calls us to different seasons and, and different times. And so uh, it became clear that if I was going to follow Deuteronomy 6 verses 6 to 7 and teach my kids the way of the Lord when they rise and when they walk in the way and and make a love for God and a learning of for God something that's infused into their days, I, I needed to be there. And yeah. so given my son's difficulties and that conviction, um, the Lord worked in my heart to leave practice and he's blessed us abundantly through that choice in ways I never would have foreseen. Uh, When I first stepped away.
1: Yeah. And Katie, you said something fascinating in your intro as well, that it was working in a hospital and seeing all that you did that led you to faith in Jesus. Could you uh, tell us that story sounds fascinating? Can you tell us a little bit more about that?
3: Absolutely. So I was not a believer. Uh, growing up, I lived in a nominal Christian household where Santa Claus was front and center at Christmas mm-hmm. and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus was on the periphery. Um, you know. But So I prayed, but didn't really know to whom. I thought being a Christian meant being a good person, which is very mm. clearly not the gospel. Um, and then it was actually through my work in the emergency department. Uh, it was halfway through my training and I was on a rotation where my job was to take care of everything that came into the the emergency room that potentially could require surgery. So ranging from very minor things like abscesses up to ruptured aortic aneurysms. It was my Mm. job to figure out what was going on, stabilize the patient and get them where they needed to go for definitive treatment. And I loved it, but I had this one harrowing night in the ER where I just witnessed suffering that I couldn't wrap my head around. Mm. Uh, And it was three young people, all coming into the ER, in extremis, dying after having been assaulted. The first was a 20-year-old who'd been assaulted with a baseball bat uh, while he was sleeping uh, and was bleeding into his brain from extensive skull fractures. And as I was fighting to try to stabilize him, to rush him off to the operating room, I kept thinking about his four-year-old little boy who had witnessed everything. Mm. And, and was just so haunted by how could this little boy who just witnessed his parents be beaten to death lead a normal life? Yeah. And then quickly on the heels after that, because in the ER, things happen in quick succession. Uh, there was a, a 15-year-old who had been stabbed in the chest mm. and came in with no pulse with paramedics doing CPR. And in that kind of scenario, as a last-ditch effort to save a life, we actually will open the patient's chest right there in the emergency department. Wow. Which I which I did and found a, a huge hole in his aorta and it was something we couldn't fix. And I just staggered back from the stretcher covered in his blood, feeling bereft and looking at this poor kid who was just he looked like a kid when you looked mm-hmm. at his face and then had to go and tell the family and found out that he was actually from Guatemala. And the irony, which was so cruel, was that he'd come to the United States for a better life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. then the last was a, a, another 15 year old who this time had been shot in the head. And came in on a ventilator, so his heart was still breathing breathing. His heart was still beating, but he was brain dead. And the only thing I could think to do in this situation was to try to clean him up so that his mm-hmm. family could still see him as they remembered him. Mm-hmm. And as I was working, someone led his boy, his mother into the room while I was sitting there with blood and brain matter on my hands. and mm-hmm. she just burst into a scream and collapsed down on the floor. Mm-hmm. And I just tugged my gloves off and ran from the room. And I felt bereft. I still had to work another 12 hours overnight, wow. Wow. But, but just kept asking myself, how could God allow mm-hmm. this kind of suffering if he truly is a good God?
4: Mm-hmm.
3: And, and thereafter, really fell into a very deep depression that lasts for a full year, uh, struggled with suicidality. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I always think about Jonah and how he ran from God. And it wasn't until he was deep down in the belly of the fish with nowhere else to go that he looked up and actually prayed. And it was the same for me. So it was in the midst of that despair uh, that I had a gentleman who had a remarkable recovery from a serious brain injury in response to prayer. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) At At a time when I didn't think God existed, I was agnostic, and I witnessed this recovery that no one expected was possible. Wow. And it was in response to prayer to Jesus. Hmm. And thereafter, uh, I start, I actually first, out of my hubris, I studied the Quran and other religions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but then finally, my husband's urging picked up the Bible and read the Gospels mm-hmm. and then read Romans. And Romans 5 brought me to tears mm-hmm. because it showed that suffering that we might not comprehend has a purpose and that because of the cross, we can even rejoice in our sufferings because we know that number one, Jesus knows our suffering because he endured it too. Yeah, And that the suffering of this world isn't the end because of what Christ has done. And so God through all of this turmoil brought me to himself under the most unusual circumstances. And I'm so, so grateful.
2: Hmm. Such a powerful, powerful story, Katie. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Are there other glimmers of grace you've experienced in
3: the hospital? Absolutely. you know, And that was actually the impetus for me writing this book was because it's very difficult sometimes in the moment when you're struggling with illness and pain and just the foreign environment of the hospital to see God at work and to cling to the truths that we proclaim every Sunday. But when we're ripped away from church and confined to a hospital bed, they can seem remote. But if we remember who God is, as is revealed in the Bible, and remember what he's done for us in Christ, you can see his hand at work, even in the midst of suffering.
1: Yeah, again, Dr. Katie Butler uh, was a trauma and critical care surgeon turned writer and homeschooling mom. She is the author of a new book called Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflections on faith, suffering, and the goodness of of God. Such a powerful, powerful story and testimony. And we're thrilled that Katie's going to stay with us. I want to kind of turn it towards people out there who are listening, going, I don't know if, if I went through uh, really hard times in my life, I think it would rock my faith. It would cause us, cause me to give up my faith. How can, how have you seen, how can a hospital stay challenge the faith of a patient or of a family?
3: Oh, so many ways. You know, number one, modern medicine, especially in the United States is highly secular. Um, And so people are often either whether it's a caregiver who's walking with a loved one who's sick, or someone who's struggling with an illness themselves, or even a clinician, a nurse or a a therapist or a doctor, we're witnesses to real difficult life and death issues, and, and pain and suffering. And that naturally leads to the big questions but what we've found and this has actually been shown in studies is that the hospital and physicians in particular do a really poor job of supporting people through those questions mm-hmm. so pe- people will be you know ripped away from their spiritual disciplines and unable to cling to god's word because they're in too much pain or you know struggling with medications that hamper concentration so they can't read the Bible they can mm. they struggle to remember the truths that help to buoy them through periods of suffering uh, and yet they're doing so in a system where for example during family meetings when people are discussing end-of-life situations and what to do for loved ones um, studies have shown that the majority of families will have spiritual concerns and will raise them during the meetings mm. and the most common response from a doctor is silence. <laughs> Wow. Or or to offer a platitude, but without further inquiry, without consulting chaplaincy, without offering that support. Mm. And and so even while illness and trials in the hospital can bring us to our knees and bring confront us with the key questions of how are we saved and, and what is the meaning of life and yeah. suffering and death, we are ripped away from the truths that we can cling to, to help us answer those questions. Hmm. Katie, I feel like just listening to you, you should be a hospital chaplain. You'd be (laughs)
2: really, really really equipped to to do that job. Um, I'm just thinking about your own story, Katie, and how the Lord challenged your faith in the middle of, you know, these medical crises. I'm wondering just about other healthcare professionals in
3: particular, how can working in hospitals challenge their faith? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with my own, it was trying to discern God's goodness in the midst of suffering. I find it's very common for clinicians to actually really struggle with guilt, uh, and and not not knowing Christ to not have any kind of framework for atonement and redemption. And hmm. and because, for instance, I can recall a, a resident that I supervised years ago who was presenting a complication that had happened in a patient. It was a patient who came in dying after a car accident. The situation was such that it was very unlikely where we were going to be able to bring him back um, to being able to leave the hospital to begin with. But she had made a, a mistake, which is inevitable. As much as mm-hmm. we'd like to control things, we are all fallen. Yeah. And we will all make mistakes at some point. And it was a really minor one that really didn't affect the course. But she was crushed and could just see and, and I see this so often with um, nurses and, and physicians replaying over and over mistakes they've made and, and feeling, okay, I have to do things perfectly now and then failing again, because we, there is no perfection for us, and not seeing that having, having the solace that we're forgiven in Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that is a huge burden that clinicians deal with that I dealt with myself until I, I came to know the gospel.
1: That's good. Uh, Katie, I'm thinking about the person in their car right now or at home who is at kind of rock bottom right now. Mm -hmm. Maybe they have they're facing a particular health issue, a loved one. We're in the midst of a pandemic, all of this. I I would love for you to take a minute and just speak specifically some words of hope to that person Uh, from your experience, from everything uh, to not give up, not give up on their faith, not give up on hope. Could you speak to that person?
3: Yeah, so you know, it's so easy to just become swamped by everything and for to go through periods that are so dark. And in these moments, I think it's really difficult to look at your circumstances and find that silver lining. But if you dive into God's word, what you see over and over is that he is faithful to us when we are not, that the sin that ravages the world is the very reason he gave us his son. And he loves us so much that he sent his son to die for us. And we see throughout, like I think about John 11, uh, when Lazarus is dying Mm -hmm. and, you know, the disciples come and tell him and everyone's expectation, the thing that seems right in everyone's eyes is for Jesus to run to Lazarus's side and to heal him because he has the power to do so, but he delays. And to those who must have witnessed that, that must have been so confusing and so upsetting. Why won't you run and help him? You know, why can't, why won't you when you can? Yeah. But then what we see, and he says, when Lazarus dies and he weeps in the face of that death because he loves Lazarus, but he says, I'm I'm glad that I was not there so that you can see the glory of God. Yeah. And you see that when he arrives, he does something so much more magnificent even than healing. Is that he raises Lazarus from the dead and in the presence of all the mourners there so they can all see God's power and trust in Jesus. And so I I tend to cling to that story during hard moments because it shows that even when we don't understand what God is doing, we can trust in him that he is good. And Mm -hmm. then even when we can't discern the answer, we know like we know from Exodus thirty four six that he is his steadfast love Endures forever, and he's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Yeah. And who he is doesn't change. Yeah. And so, while the answer might not be discernible to us, we can trust in who the Bible says he is. It's good. It's mm, good, Katie.
2: With just the minute or so that we have left, Katie, what are some ways that we can support loved ones, family members in the hospital when they're struggling with their faith?
3: Oh, absolutely. I think the most important thing is actually the ministry of presence. Um, very often, especially for coming into a hospital room and it's unfamiliar and we're uncomfortable, we want to fix things or give advice, and oftentimes that can hurt more than help. I had a friend who once, when I came to visit him, he was ex- totally exasperated in the hospital, and I said, "What's wrong?" He says, "If one more," he was in the hospital for emphysema, and he said, "If one more person tells me to try apple cider vinegar." I'm going to flip (laughs) (laughs) and that those things are well-meaning and we say them because we just want to help. Yeah. But I think the most important thing to realize is that people are going to endure these trials in different ways. And, and so the most important thing is to come alongside people and to just be a presence. Mm -hmm. And for some people, they will just want you to sit there and watch TV with them. And that is enough of a, a support. Others they'll want to talk about the nitty gritty of what they're going through. Others will say, I don't want to talk about any of this. Let's talk about normal life. Let's talk about gossip and what's going on at church, you know? So I think it's important to, number one, go by their lead. And then second thing, I think it's just so critical to keep praying. Pray with them Mm -hmm. before you go. Pray for them and let them know that you're praying for them. Bring your Bible and offer to read to them if they're struggling to read themselves. So those are the two things. I think just focusing on each person as an individual unique image bearer of God with their own suffering narrative Mm -hmm. and following their lead and then do the best you can to help to bring God's word to them when they're starving for it themselves.
1: That's good. Again, Dr. Katie Butler, trauma and critical care surgeon turned writer and homeschooling mom, the author of a new book. Let me encourage you to go pick it up. It's called Glimmers of Grace, a doctor's reflections on faith, suffering, and the goodness of God. You can get that wherever it is you get your books. You can also learn more about Katie and her book at blog. That's blog. Katie, this was so good. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We appreciate it.
3: Oh, thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah, you're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, friends, welcome back to The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Aubrey Sampson. My name is Brian Fromm. Really glad to have you with us on this Thursday afternoon. Hope you're having a great day. Aubrey, it's that time of year where it's like Perfect Chicago weather for like two weeks. So get outside and enjoy
2: It is gorgeous right now. Like 75 degrees. Hey.
1: Yeah. Although we keep you and I, where, where are the allergies coming from? I'm like all sneezy and. Same. I don't know. It's I terrible. don't know. We, can't, we can't have good things. That's what it comes down to. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Hey, don't let me forget later. I've got I've got a dad joke for you. you know you know what? I'm gonna try I'm gonna try a dad joke. I've two. Yes, let yes! me try one on you because one okay. of my kids thought this one was funny last night, and two thought it was maybe the worst one I ever shared.
2: Okay, I can't wait.
1: So uh, it's a World War II uh, themed dad joke. Are you ready? Are you ready? <laughs> okay,
2: hold on. I gotta close my eyes. Okay, here I go. I'm ready. I'm ready.
1: All right. In World War II, Aubrey, where is it that the Germans hid their armies? Um, the answer to that question is in their sleeveys.
2: In their sleeveys.
1: Their armies, their sleeveys. Oh. <laughs> I right, needed oh, some no.
2: explanation.
3: No. <laughs> okay. That
2: one is actually my favorite. That one is
3: my favorite.
2: I think okay. I got thrown by the Germans and I was thinking Nazi No, So you have, you
1: have to somehow get to, otherwise it's just a random question. Where do you hide your armies? You're like, what? So you got it. You got to get it.
2: <laughs> yeah. Maybe if you, I think if you had it, prefaced it with the Germans, like, cause then all you're thinking is Nazis and okay, Hitler. Okay. That's that, good. So, you know, for the future, when you tell this joke again, <laughs> I Hitler, would say Hitler
1: doesn't make for good jokes. <laughs> yeah. Like throw in the American armies. Where, okay. uh, where did
2: Patton hide his armies in a sleepies? <laughs> all
1: right. But I got you. Like once a, you understood it, yeah, once, on that one.
2: I'm in. I'm in. That was a dad joke, not a dud joke. Once okay. I got it, all
1: right, we might go with another one later if we have time. Okay. But okay, I felt Thank like you. when I heard that came from somebody else, when I heard that one, <laughs> I, I I was like, I think I've got her on that one. Like that one's gonna be okay. So,
2: yeah, you blessed me today. Thank you. You're I needed welcome. That. I needed that.
1: Speaking of being blessed, ah, that's a transition right there. Mm-hmm. Speaking of being blessed. Nice segue. Uh, I stepped outside, uh, in my, of my front door last night to find a package. There was a package at my door last night. And uh, if you're in the Fromm household, you know that that is not that of an uncommon experience. Uh, Through Amazon, we have gotten to know (laughs) the FedEx and UPS guys way too well. (laughs)
2: That's so true for all of us. And
1: uh, nine times out of ten, the package says Carrie Fromm on it, right? Rarely. So when my name is on something, this one said Brian and Carrie Fromm. I get very excited. Wow, Wow. Big day for you. Okay, I opened up the box, and what is staring at me right there but a new book hot off the presses one aubrey Sampson. i got hey! your book today.
2: i know that girl i know that package
1: and is this this is what's going on right now right people are getting the book yeah to so people check are it getting out.
2: early these are early copies brian so you're in the you're in the special early group you're getting a copy a couple of weeks early because the book actually doesn't release until september 7th Yes. But you are getting an early copy. The point is to sort of review it, look at it, share all about it on social media, let the world know, hey, I got this book. I like this book in the hopes that other people will share it. But I'm glad you got yours. I People have been sending me text messages that they're starting to be delivered so that's That's very very fun yeah do i
1: have to read it before i tell people that i like it?
2: no 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 just go ahead and give five stars (laughs) tell everyone you like it
1: so what is and then i want to talk about the book again because it's it's going to be a good one you know we would normally have had john anyway if you weren't my co-host to talk about your book so that's
2: kind of funny isn't it that's awesome
1: you probably would have come into studio we would have done the whole uh the whole rigmarole so uh Tell me, what is it like when you're getting texts? I sent you a text last night with a picture of my daughter holding your book. What is it like? What is that feeling as an author like as people are holding your book and sending you pictures of it?
2: Oh, I mean, there's nothing like it in the world. It's absolutely so, so fun. And then I actually took a picture. I put the book on my bookshelf next to my other two books. And I just had this moment of like, Lord, you are so kind to me. I can't (laughs) believe in my life right now, I'm taking a picture of my third book alongside my first two books. Like that is unbelievable. That's awesome. But to have people I love holding in their hands and celebrating it and sharing it like there is nothing. I don't know. It's really fun. It's really, really fun. I think at the end of the day, though, I hope when they open it, God. Moves and God teaches yeah. and God speaks. Otherwise, it's sort of like, well, but, yeah, right. but I, I believe God will. So I'm excited.
1: So there was one negative result to it in my house. One of my children, who were nam- nameless, as I was telling them, oh, this is Aubrey member, you know, it's my co host. We're like, oh, that's cool. Uh, one of my children goes, Dad, you should write a book. <laughs> and I was like, that is not going to happen. No, so. I think you I think you and
2: I are gonna co co-write a book called The Common Good here in the next couple of years. It's happening. I see it. I look forward
1: it. to that. Yeah. I look forward to that. You write that, I will put my name <laughs> on whatever you write. That is
2: wonderful. I'll uh, go straight for you.
1: There you go. So the book is called Known, How Believing Who God Says You Are Changes Everything. Uh let me ask you a question that you ask many of the authors when they come on our show. Mm. Uh, not only what is the book about, but why did you write this book now?
2: Yeah, that's that's a great question. And, and In fact, Kevin was kind of asking me some questions about it last night. And I was like, why did I write it right now? I think right now, because we have uh, – we talk about this all the time on The Common Good – there is so much vying for our attention and so many like tribes and opinions and even um, companies vying really to own us in a sense and to commodify us and to try to name who we are and by doing so, you know, shape who we are and shape how we spend and I felt like it was time just to remind people. I mean, it's a simple message. It's really an identity in Christ book, but it was time for such a time as this to remind people of who God says you are, not who social media says you are, not who this politician says you are, not who this certain tribe that you want to be accepted by says you are. Who does God say you are? What does scripture say you are? And if we can anchor our identities in the truth of God's word that never changes and never fails, then we have a firm foundation from which we can live and breathe and make Mm -hmm. decisions and love people and even love ourselves.
1: Yeah. How does that change things then? uh, If people want to know what are these names that God has given to Mm -hmm. us, go get the book when it comes out September 7th. But how does it actually affect the day-to-day lives that we live?
2: Yeah, I I think that's a super important question. I would say there's there's a few things. Um, one, there's an inner healing that takes place. So part of my story, Brian, which I don't know if I've actually, I'm getting really vulnerable today on the show. Uh, Part of my story is that I was sexually assaulted twice as a teenager. Once Mm. when I was in middle school, another time when I was in high school. Now other people have worse stories than mine, but mine were deeply painful and wounded me. And I lived with a lot of shame Mm. and a lot of heartache and a lot of self-blame for years because of those experiences. And the enemy used that to plant lies in my life that just said you are not enough or you are too needy or you Mm -hmm. are too this or blah, 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 blah. I mean, just those lies. We all, we don't have to go through big T trauma like that to experience those lies. We hear them. And so, um, Uh, one of the things that happens when we can begin to know who God says we are is that inner healing takes place. Mm -hmm. And the gospel is not primarily like therapy, but I do think one of the benefits of understanding how deeply loved and known we are by God is that we begin to realize how beloved we actually are. And so those lies get drowned out and we don't have to live out of that place. Instead we can live, um, not for approval, but from approval, the That's way Jesus good. did. Yeah. And then I think secondly, I mean, there's a lot that I unpack in the, in the book, but just to be general, um, then that impacts how we live for God. So when we mm-hmm. know who we are in God, we can live for God. We live on mission. We love other people. We go out into the world with purpose and with meaning. We make a difference in other people's lives because we're not questioning our foundations. We're standing firm and then we're being sent out for Jesus's name.
1: That's a good word. So anyway, people can go to Amazon, other places, pre-order. It comes out September the 7th. The book is called Known. Are you going to go on other radio shows and talk about this? I are, are they're obviously- already
2: being booked. It's kind of funny. I am going to go on some other radio shows. I don't, shows. Know. I so don't I'm like, know how I feel about that. I'll promote the common good while I'm promoting <laughs> Known. So it'll be a double effort. Also, let me just say quickly, there's an audio version coming out on September 7th. If you're an audible person rather than reading, that will be available for you as well
1: awesome well we are excited for you i was excited to get the book yesterday go pick it up pre-order wherever it is you get your books well coming up next do you have a social media philosophy we're gonna talk about what that even is and why it's important for us to have one we're gonna have that conversation next year on the common good am 1160 hope for your life
2: Coming up this hour, do you have a social media philosophy for life? And then we're joined by author Natalie Frank to talk about her new book, Built to Belong, Discovering the Power of Community Over Competition. You're listening to The Common Good. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we are so thrilled to have you with us today today. Okay, Brian, got a question. I'm going to pop for you as I like to do. I like to uh, pop you with questions every once in a while. That's right. Do you have a social media philosophy?
1: Yeah, that sounds really formal. Uh
2: (laughs) Well, maybe an informal one
1: i i uh I would say at at times I would say when i 'm handling social media well, I think it's i've got some principles that are driving it as opposed to it driving me, but I will also be honest that there are more times than I would like to admit where social media kind of uh drives me like why am I looking at it right now or wait I have like just a little bit of time and i'm you know it's the first thing i'm looking at when I get up in the morning what's going on you know it's uh yeah, so I would say at times I have some um uh, some kind of hallmarks that 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 I try to stick to it. Other times, I don't. You also know social media in terms of philosophy as well. I am not a commenter on things. I don't...
2: You, uh, ne- I, you don't ever comment. I'm always
1: shocked by it. I don't. I don't. At most, I'll comment like a congratulations or a this or that. And so I don't feel like I even really need a philosophy of like, be nice to people, don't stir the pot, because that's just kind of by nature how I treat social media anyway. So... Uh, so to answer your question do I have a social media philosophy? The answer is kind of. Kind of. <laughs> and, and what is that do you, you
2: think that not commenting is part of your philosophy or is that just more of your personality style I online? I think that's
1: a personality because it's not like I ever was like, oh I have to strive to calm down in what I'm commenting on or I have to do this. And it's start it's funny. Sometimes I don't comment because I don't want to see everyone else's comments later, but other times it oh, just yeah, feels Oh yeah, yeah. It's just never how I've used social media. I've always used social media for, oh, that's a fun picture of their pets or happy birthday or <laughs> whatever else it might be. So I tend not to be a commenter. And, uh, you know, I, so I suppose that's part of my philosophy, but it was never like, okay, this is how I'm going to be. So, what is Aubrey Sampson's uh, social media philosophy? I don't know. Besides using it to sell books. I, I,
2: yeah. I mean, I'm like you. I don't know that I have a formal philosophy. I'm wondering if I probably should. Actually, I'm wondering if most of us, especially as Christians, should. That's part of why I'm asking the question. I I would say mine is some of the things I do, some of the habits I have. I tend to post daily. But then I don't stay online all day. Like I post and Mm. then I leave. I might check again later that evening. But I am not someone who is just constantly updating my Facebook and answering people and blah, blah, blah. Like I just can't live that way or it makes me crazy. Yeah. I am someone who does try to share other people's work, especially if it's minority voices or authors I'm a really big fan of and I want to like celebrate them and promote their work. I tend to try to try to use it for the common good. Wink, wink.
0: wink, wink. Um, obviously
2: I do use it to sell books. Uh, I would say I use it to follow people I respect and admire. I try not to have arguments on social media. In fact, I'm not sure that I've ever maybe once had an argument on social media. Cause that just feels gross a little mm. bit to me. Like it just doesn't work very well. Um, but anyway, I don't know if I've, I just wonder if I've really been intentional about creating a philosophy. Here's why I asked this. Michael, well, let me ask you a quick yeah, question go real ahead. Fast before
1: yep. you get into his tweet. Yep. Uh, uh, I'll let you speak for your husband. Like your husband's one who will more engage people oh, on,
2: big fo- time. on
1: social media. And it's caused him problems, but also caused him great um, fruit and Absolutely. connection. And this so he's somebody you and I are both like, I try not to comment, but you're married to a guy yep. who uses it in, in a very pastoral and yep. thoughtful way. How would he answer this question? Because he's probably had to think through that a lot more than you and I basically go and I tend not to stir the pot or get into it. How does how does Kevin um, strategically or not strategically view Facebook, Twitter, Instagram? Yeah,
2: I mean, part of Kevin's personality is he's not afraid of conflict. So mm-hmm. that certainly guides like his personality guides his philosophy. But my husband is very intentional and very quick to post anything that is a uh, racist and stand against it. He mm. is just constantly, constantly on that. And because of that, like you said, he has a beautiful community. I mean, this is I think lightning rods are actually really good follows on social media and he's a lightning rod. Um, So because of that, a lot of people have followed him, appreciate him. He gets a lot of side messages from people saying, thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Not that he's like a white savior or anything, but just sometimes you don't see a white male pastor speaking out so openly against racism, which he does. And but. On the other hand, I mean, he's had friends of ours even say, Kevin, do you even like white people anymore? Like people (laughs) get a little bit crazy and they get mad and they get offended. And so but he's just not afraid of that. And I'll be honest, as the wife, for a long time, I was like, oh, no, here we go again. I can't believe he did that. Blah, 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 blah. And then one day it hit me. Oh, it's not Kevin's social media that's the problem. It's the racism that's the problem. Mm. What am I so afraid of? And so being able to step back and say, you know what? When people are when people are angry at some of the stuff he says, it's just showing where their hearts are. Mm. And um, it's at least creating a good conversation and a good yeah. community. So I actually, it took me a while, but I've learned a lot from him. And I actually really respect and admire how he uses mm. his social media. It is definitely a watershed, though. You either like it or you don't like it. That's right. And, that's uh, right. If you're interested, he's Kevin Sampson. You can follow him if you want to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I bring this up because Micah Fry's on Twitter. He's a friend of mine. He's a pastor. He's a discipleship guy. He runs a couple organizations. Um, he has a media philo- social media philosophy that he says he's learned or adjusted and or adjusted over the years. These are his points. Share content. Try to respond with kindness to everyone. Be firm about what I believe to be true engage in conversation when it's fun or joking. Never, ever argue with, and then he has in parentheses with very, very (laughs) rare
4: exceptions.
2: (laughs) And then he says, social media is a great place to share info or to engage in friendly banter. It's an awful place to have significant conversations or disagreements. Those should happen offline and face-to-face if necessary, which is something you and I have talked about before on this show, Brian. What do you think about his philosophy?
1: I like the first one, sharing content, because mm-hmm. social media at its best is a place where you can be like, hey, read this article. Hey, have you thought I about agree. this? I think it is, hey, buy this book uh, coming out on September the 7th, right? Like that kind of uh, content. Uh, be firm by what you believe to be true. Engage in conversation, but never argue. That's just a hard, that's a hard line to walk. Mm-hmm. It's a difficult line to walk, but I do agree with him, especially – Arguing with people like you have two choices, right? On social media, you could argue with people who you are not in relationship with, and that seems really dumb, right? Like in a waste of time. Right. Or you could be arguing with people that you know and love. And then the question is, why are you doing it online in the first place? Give them a call, shoot them a text, go grab coffee with each other. So there's never really a good reason other than to make yourself look smart or just because you like arguing. Uh, but it is there, there's a there's a very fine line between. Uh, be firm about what I truly believe and don't argue on social media. That's a tough philosophy to walk.
2: I think that's really tough too, um, especially if you're confident and you're firm about what you believe. And then that starts a fight. Exactly. Right?
1: Exactly. right? See and, Kevin Sampson. Yeah, see Kevin <laughs> Sampson. And I,
2: I feel like one thing Kevin has learned, and, and we'll wrap up with this, is. He used to, I think, banter back with people and try to argue back with people who were arguing. And he just stopped. He's like, you know what? I'm going to put the conversation out there. I'm going to let people say what they say. And that's all I'm going to do. And it's just been interesting to see the way that God has actually built our church, Renewal Church, through that. And people have left Renewal Church through it as well. So anyway, interesting for us all to think about our social media philosophies and how they might build other people up. How they might stand firm for truth and how they might honor God. I think it's an interesting conversation to keep happening, to keep uh, having together. Well, coming That's up right. next, we're talking about belonging and the power of spirit, uh, power of the spirit of community over the spirit of competition with author Natalie Frank. She's the head of community for Honeybook. She's the author of a new book called Built to Belong. It's going to be a great conversation. Stick around for that. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host Brian Fromm. We're so thrilled to have you with us today. And we are joined by Natalie Frank. She is the head of community for HoneyBook. She's the co-founder of Rising Tide Society. And she's the author of the new book, Built to Belong, Discovering the Power of Community Over Competition. Her book will release really soon on August 24th. Natalie, we're so glad to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. So excited to be here. Mm-hmm. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, where you're from, what you do, that kind of thing?
5: Yes. I'm a full-time wedding photographer turned community builder and a mom of a very rambunctious two-year-old with a baby currently on the way in a couple of weeks. And um, I wrote this book, Built to Belong, and I'm just so excited to see it come out into the world and to continue to make waves.
1: That's great. A baby and a book. That is impressive. Very impressive. That's great. That's great. (laughs) Natalie, this idea of belonging and community is so important uh, these days. Uh, We talk about that on the show all the time here. I'd love to just hear your story of kind of a longing for connection in all of the chaos and the fast pacedness of life. Why did you decide to write this book? What's that journey been like in your own life?
5: Yeah, you know, I I on the outside looking in, it looked like I had everything together. You know, on the outside looking in, prior to writing this book, you would assume she has tons of friends, she has followers, she's built a successful business, she's checked so many of the boxes, married to my high school sweetheart. And and the truth is that all those things while true, you know, I I was longing for connection. I was incredibly lonely. I felt like I was, you know, waiting in the shallow end when we were called to create relationships in the deep end. We were called to really do life with others. Scrolling social media only left me feeling, you know, like I was comparing myself rather than connecting. And so I started on a journey of trying to uncover why are we struggling with loneliness? Why right. am I feeling so disconnected from others? Why is everything in my life a competition? Why is why are jobs a competition? Your house a competition? Your marriage a competition? The way your body looks a competition? Mm. How your kids are hitting milestones? Why is that a competition? Mm. And why aren't we truly living in community? with each other, truly living, not just the highlights of life that we're sharing on our Instagram or posting to our Facebook, but the reality of life, right? The valleys of our lives. Why aren't we carrying one another through that? And I realized in starting to build community for other people that so many of us are approaching, especially our digital lives and how we're showing up online, but even our in-person lives, not from a place of community over competition. We, mm-hmm. we feel this pressure to perform. We feel this, this need to run the rat race of always measuring up and always seeming like we have it together and that there is such a better way. There, there is such a better path forward. And so, I, f- I felt really led to write this book. I felt I felt really called to kind of reflect on my own journey through entrepreneurship, through building community for others and what I uncovered there, through being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor, mm. going through neurosurgery, navigating infertility, mm. stepping into motherhood, and just these different seasons of life that revealed to me how at the end of the day, we are built for belonging and we are created for connection and we truly need one another.
2: Mm. Oh, it sounds so great, Natalie. Again, you can find more about Natalie at nataliefrank.com. You can connect with her on Twitter at Natalie Frank. And the name of the book we're talking about is Built to Belong, Discovering the Power of Community Over Competition. Natalie, um, in some of the research that you've done, do you sense that you have a reason why we're so prone to competition and striving and some of the things you just mentioned? Like, what is the reason behind that for humanity?
5: Absolutely. Well, we, in the same way that we are built to belong, our brains are wired to compete. Mm -hmm. You know, we're, we're wired to survive. And in that respect, wired to thrive. And so we set out with a desire to rise up as the individual to become the best version of ourselves that we can. But somewhere along the line, that tendency that actually serves a significant purpose, right? That's not necessarily a bad thing. That's in many ways a good thing. It skews into an unhealthy, unhealthy lane. And ultimately, instead of trying to be our best and be the best version of, of who we are called to be, we shift into a lane where we're trying to be the best, mm. where being our best is no longer enough, where, where living into our potential and our purpose is replaced by you know needing to win the gold medal, needing mm-hmm. to be the fastest, the smartest, the be prettiest, the, the most successful person yeah. on the block. And in the pursuit of chasing that we stop chasing what we were called to do and how each of us are uniquely equipped for greatness, but in our own way. And, and that grace, greatness enabling us to actually lift others up in their greatness, right? And so um, it's sort of the this overdrive reaction where we are wired to compete. That's not inherently a bad thing. I talk about the science behind it. I talk about the, the brain and the psychology of competition in the book. But what happens is it's now shifted into such an unhealthy space where, as I said, everything becomes the competition. Yes. And we feel like we can't escape that. And in the pursuit of competing, we can't truly rise together in community.
1: And now talk to us about the role of social media right now, Mm -hmm. because, you know, I'm on Facebook. I have all these friends. I'm connecting to people all the time. But yet research tends to say social media is leading to loneliness. So help people understand uh, this kind of social media dynamic and our desire to belong.
5: Yes, we are living through one of the most connected periods of human history and yet are feeling more disconnected than ever before. These platforms that give us the illusion often of true friendship mm-hmm. are very much masquerading, right? What, what we are, what we we're craving, and they're not actually delivering us the oxygen that we need. We're breathing superficial air and it doesn't have to be that way either. I think, I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that these platforms do give us that opportunity to connect because these platforms are designed to keep us scrolling to keep us consuming, to keep us, you know, liking and and engaging, um, but not not any further deepening that that relationship. And so it comes down to really understanding why you're using these platforms to be intentional and to not just consume, but instead to connect um and and to step forward boldly, knowing that with these platforms, we don't have to watch one another from a distance. We can truly love one another up close, that we can reach deeper um, and and use these platforms for good that there's possibility here to break these cycles of just consuming and comparing and transform that into learning about one another. And then, like I said, ending the watching from a distance and stepping into loving each other up close.
2: It's great, Natalie. One of the things that you just mentioned and one of the things I know you write about in the book is overcoming comparison. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering in just the couple of minutes that we have left here, give us some like practical handholds when we are feeling that, ooh, that pull of comparison and it feels painful. What in the world do we do?
5: Yes, I'm gonna give you two tips to walk away with right now. First, gratitude. Gratitude is a weapon in the war of comparison. It is hard to be jealous of someone else when you are grateful for the gifts and the blessings you have in your life. So first step forward with gratitude, root yourself there, always anchor yourself In that gratitude, I keep a list every single day of the things that I am grateful for. And even in hard seasons, when I was going through infertility and I was longing, longing for that pregnancy and that child, I'd still sit down in those mornings and I'd write down what are the three things today that I am grateful for. We always can reach for that. Secondarily, we can do something called cognitive reframing. And this is in some of the research with cognitive behavioral therapy um, that I did in preparation for this book. Cognitive reframing is the simple act of catching conscious thought. Reframing it in our mind and reasserting the truth. I call it flipping lies and turning them into truth. So when you, you catch yourself comparing to, to take that sentence, whether it's, you know, "Ah, gosh, I don't have what she has or I, I'm falling behind. He's, he's, you know, racing ahead and I'm falling behind. You stop yourself in that moment and you flip the script. You cognitively frame that conversation instead of it being, I'm jealous of her. She has something I don't have. You flip it and you say, I am happy for her. I'm going to celebrate that accomplishment. She's on my team. I'm on her team. When she wins, I win. And the minute you align yourself with the winnings of someone else, the success of someone else, no longer are they your competitor, but they are a part of your community. In the pursuit of doing that, you both can rise together.
2: Such a good word. Tell us a little bit about the Rising Tide Society. What is it? What sparked the idea for it? And how has it grown over the years?
5: Yes, Rising Tide is a community of creative entrepreneurs, small business owners and independents who believe in this mindset of community over competition, who um really believe fiercely that we can rise and thrive together. And so the name comes from the famous quote, a rising tide lifts all boats, mm. and the idea that in business we can compete for, you know, clients or customers, but at the end of the day we leave competition in the arena. And when we emerge from that. We are community. We fight for one another. We support one another, um, and, and we build a community where we want all small business owners to have the opportunity to thrive. And so that's kind of where it all began. And prior to this, you know, prior to writing a book, I, I was a small business owner. I ran a, a wedding photography business in my hometown of Annapolis, Maryland, for eight years. And so I've been both the business owner struggling with competition and the community builder trying to correct our course and, and bring us back together.
1: That's great. And Anna, we talked a lot in the first part about Built to Belong, your new book. Uh, and uh, you, you shared a little bit of your story of, of having issues with infertility and having a brain tumor, you said, like a really heavy stuff. Uh, what role did your community, your friends, your deep friendships play in you getting through those things and processing those things? And what would have happened in your life if you didn't have those people?
5: My community carried me. Mm. My community carried me. Like to say they supported me is is a vast understatement. My community held my hand and wept with me, prayed with me. Um I mean truly carried me throughout each of those seasons of my life from being diagnosed with a benign brain tumor to going through surgery, to navigating disability on the other side and and complications and that recovery season and through infertility and um again like just so many parts of my journey i it actually shaped how i view community i in the book explain you know i used to think that community was this kumbaya moment, you know, like mm-hmm. what I experienced sometimes at church, where we, you know, we, we worship together, we sit side by side. It's this uplifting and euphoric moment um, of of praise and of joy. And I had never been on the receiving end of being the one that needed community in my darkest moment, having been in the valley, having having needed someone to kind of carry me through. And so, um, you know, my my community is the reason I am still here and I'm doing what I do, but also why I fight so fiercely for every single person to be able to experience what I experienced when I went through some of my darkest days to, to be uplifted, um, by people, some of which I you know had been a part of my life, we all have family that maybe we 're close to or friends that feel like family, but even the the ability through vulnerability and opening up about about my journey to have people I had never met mm. um, come from the goodness of their heart just to carry me through that journey, so home cooked meals. You know, when my husband couldn't even cook because he was taking care of every need that I had from the most basic needs um, through through complex ones to other business owners taking over my blog and my social media accounts just to keep them running for me Mm. while I was recovering from brain surgery. Um, through infertility, just connecting with with other women who had experienced very difficult seasons, whether they looked just like mine or were different, mm-hmm. um, and, and being and being given hope in moments of hopelessness, being, you know, fueled by the fire of others when I needed that spark to be reignited in myself. And mm-hmm. so I, I say in the book, you know, community is strongest in the struggle. And I know right now a lot of listeners out there might be going through a struggle of their own. Yeah. And so I, I say that in reminder that you don't have to go through this alone. Yeah, right, That you great. have people that are, that are within reach who are willing to help you through it if you'll let them.
2: Natalie, with that in mind, one of the things that you write about in the book is finding your people. And I'm just thinking of our listeners who may be going through something like you just said that's really terrible. And they're not even sure how to reach out to somebody. Like, how do I find my people? What words of encouragement do you have for them?
5: Yes. I, I always say lean into the power of one. One point of connection, one conversation, one person at a time. Mm-hmm. Often when we are struggling, it feels overwhelming to, to reach out at all. And so if we can break it down and make it um, achievable and bite-sized, it helps us to start to, you know, kind of find the stairway out, you know, kind of find the ladder to help us climb out of, of what we're navigating, but with the arms outreach from others lifting us and pulling us to safety. And so I say, start with that one conversation. Think of one person, whether it's past or present in your life. It doesn't have to be someone even that you're in daily contact with. All of us have come across folks in our lives that... that support us or have made an impact, you know, spark that one conversation. And then from there, you'll start to discover, you know, the safer spaces where you can find your people, but it doesn't have to be overnight and it doesn't have to be a massive circle. It's about the quality and the depth of relationships, not necessarily the quantity, right. And not necessarily the, mm-hmm. the way things look, but the way things are. So dig, dig deep one conversation at a time.
1: That's good. And Natalie, how would you, there might be people out there thinking, I've got friends, I've got people, I is that what we're talking about? Uh, how do you know when you've reached deep friendships? How do you know when you've got people in your life, whether it be one person or a couple of people that you've got this sort of depth of relationship with?
5: When you can show up as your authentic self, when you can show up not polished and perfect, but broken. Right When you can come to the table with your struggles and your hardships without fear of judgment, without fear of being cast aside and, and told to leave, um, I think when you find a friend that is able to sit with you through the real challenges of life. Um, and, and that doesn't always mean just, you know, telling you what you want to hear. Sometimes that means having a friend that can see you as you are, that can love you as you are and still show up with wise counsel or support. And so I think it comes down to cultivating relationships where you're, you're able and you feel safe to share the struggles of life. And I look back at some of the, again, some of those darkest moments we've talked about where I've, I've been in, in these pits of despair. And I think about who's the first person I wanted to call who was the first person i felt safe to say this is where i'm really at right now this is what i'm struggling with this is this is the the hardship that i'm facing and i didn't have to sugarcoat it or i didn't have to change it to make it more palatable make it more acceptable i could i could show up as my true self i think when you start to d- uncover those relationships when you start to fight for those relationships and you start to become that person for others as well where you acknowledge wow, that, that took a lot of courage for that person to come to me and share that they're struggling in their marriage or, you know, come to me and say that they're going through a diagnosis with their child and they just needed someone to listen. They needed someone to be there for them to show up with a home cooked meal. They trusted me with that. That's also mm-hmm. on the reciprocal side, an indication that you are not only reaching out for those friendships, but you are those friendships for other yeah. people, which I think we also must celebrate too.
2: Yeah, that's such a good word, Natalie. Natalie, where can our listeners find out more about you, what you're doing? Where can they buy your book? Give us all of the information, Natalie Frank. Absolutely.
5: So you can connect with me online, nataliefrank.com or on any social platform, just at Natalie Frank. And Frank does have an E at the end. I always Mm -hmm. love to tell people that because it's a a fun spelling passed on from, you know, my ancestors. Love that. And uh, yeah, and the book is sold wherever you buy your books, including on audio. So you can just go and search for Built to Belong or my name, Natalie Frank, and purchase your book. You can also head to nataliefrank.com slash book and learn more there.
2: Again, Natalie Frank with an E is the head of Community for HoneyBook, co-founder of the Rising Tide Society and author of the new book that we've been talking about, Built to Belong, discovering the power of community over competition. Natalie, thanks so much for being with us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Coming up next, what can we learn about human connection from a seven-year-old? You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to The Common Good on this Thursday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson alongside my co-host, Brian Fromm, and we're so thrilled that you're with us today. We like to always end our show each and every day by giving you something encouraging to think about and we're going to talk about human connection and some of the lessons we can all learn from a seven-year-old, Brian. I'm ready. What do you think a seven-year-old has to say to us about human connection? I'm curious
1: about this. As one who's had three different children be seven, I can't... Uh, yes, I, I'm, I'm interested. I, I obviously listened to this, as did you. And I'm going to preface this to people as we try to encourage them and challenge them on their way out the door here, that uh, this girl... Speaks like no seven year old that I know. (laughs) Right. Yes. And so, yes, not only the content, but the, uh, just the, the presentation you're just like what in the world so anyway it's crazy
2: yeah so what brian's referring to now that we want to play a little clip for you of this is a ted talk from seven year old molly wright she speaks like a 45 year old yes i want to speak like her yes such poise and uh such skill but what she's talking about is something really powerful and that is meaningful connection so let's go ahead and listen to molly wright's wisdom
4: So what's something you can do that can really make a difference? Scientists call it, serve and return. That's just a grown up way of saying, connect, talk and play with us. Each time you talk to us, play with us, make us laugh. It not only builds and strengthens our relationships and mental health, it actually teaches us some of the most important life skills. From making friends, to taking the test, to getting a job, to one day, maybe even starting a family of our own. Interactions only in often matter. Take it from me, the seven year old up here, talking about brain science. <laughs> so please try and remember. The most special period for our development is the first five years. Starting from inside mommy's tummy. What's something really impactful you can do? Serve and return. And when? Early and often. Imagine the difference we could make if everyone everywhere did this. All right.
2: So that's Molly reminding all of us parents that the most meaningful, important, impactful years in a child's life are from birth to age five What I thought was so powerful about this is I think this relates to grownups as well. And what she talks about is this concept of serve and return. Um, Ultimately, what that means is connecting, talking, playing, building imagination, building empathy with our kids. And this is the convicting part. When that connection is taken away between parents and their kids, because parents pick up devices uh, that could cause lifelong negative impact. Mm-hmm. Woo, that one was convicting for me. I watched this whole TED Talk with Molly Wright, which you can find on YouTube. And I was like, oh, wow. Every time I pick up my device, that separates the connection with That's my right. husband or with my kids or with whoever I'm with. And uh, there are long-term effects of that. I don't know. What do you think about that, Brian?
1: Yeah, it's. we keep going back to our phones and all this other stuff. I think about even just as a pastor, I had somebody challenge me once about checking my phone while meeting with them. And there was a reason I was doing it, but it severed this connection Mm. of like, uh, you're not really here. And you think about your children, especially at this age where she's talking about uh they, they are hardwired, as she said, for this connection, for this play, for this interaction. And, and then when you get your kids a little older and they know what's going on, so we're not in the baby phase, yeah. but they're in, you know, they get it when they seem like a nuisance to you, mm-hmm. uh, even though you would never say your kid's a nuisance. But if I'm checking my phone or trying to do work all the time right. and constantly shushing them or pushing them away. Our kids are gonna get that. And it's gonna it's going to say to them messages we never want our kids to know. Uh that say, um, I I don't uh I don't value our time together. Yeah, or I don't have time want for you. Or, yeah,
2: exactly. All
1: of these things. And so uh I, I think we gotta be really careful because we think oh, I'm just quickly checking a text. I'm just quickly checking mm-hmm. Twitter. It goes back to what we talked about earlier, the social media philosophy. Well, this is kind of like a altogether um a phone philosophy yeah. or being a connected philosophy. It says there are going to be times where I'm just in it with my kids. We're going to go outside and play. I'm going to leave my phone inside. We're yeah. going to watch something together. We're going to play. Uh, we're going to do this together. So from baby, you know, I thought she did a fabulous job showing us how that affects a baby. But we all know it affects kids, spouses, adults. It affects all of us. When people we want to be connecting with don't have the decency to disconnect from their phone or whatever else in order to actually connect with us.
2: Now, are you and Carrie one of those couples who sit at restaurants or on your dates and you're both staring at your phones? Or do you see couples like that when you're out and about?
1: I do see couples like that when we're out and about. Uh, Carrie and I do not tend to be like that. Now, if we get a text, especially, you know, oh, is that one of the kids? I think we do a pretty good job. It probably speaks also to how infrequently we've been getting out and and (laughs) about. Right, right. Uh, but no, you do see that. And and you'll see people out on a date and just on their phones. You want to be like, man, you're paying a lot of money yeah, <laughs> right yeah, now yeah, in order to do that. No, Carrie and I, when we're home together and we're on the couch, we might sit by each other and spend an hour on our phones. Totally. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not saying don't ever be on your phones when you're around your spouse or whatever. But there has to be times with your spouse. With your children, with people that you're close with, where there has to be times where you're willing to disconnect as a way of saying to them, I value you, I'm with you right now. And that's more important than whatever text, whatever Twitter can tell me, whatever Facebook, And I'm speaking conviction to myself as much to anybody else here. Uh, Because I've been caught many times. It happened last night. Oh, really? We were talking to my daughter, and my wife kind of gave me that sad, uh, that side eye because I was looking at something on my phone. Like it happens without giving much thought to it. And I think the takeaway here is give thought to it.
2: We were uh, on a date. This was several years ago at a restaurant, and I'll never forget Kevin and I actually intentionally picked up my phone or his phone because we were actually waiting for some medical results and we wanted to read it together. But we funny. picked up our phone and literally a lady walked over, like got up from her table walked over to ours and scolded us for being on a date and looking at our phones and i got really mad like i kind of snapped back at her like ma'am this is none of your business right now we're doing something personal we picked up our phones on purpose but i think uh even though i didn't like it i think her heart was in the right place that she (laughs) was feeling (laughs) frustrated by the younger generation not being present when they're actually with each other but isn't that funny
1: yes that's that's gutsy too. I I would take that step. Uh, But that is gutsy for sure.
2: So, okay. uh, One last thing. Why do you think we do it? Like why is it just the addiction or why is it so hard to just like set our phone aside and be with the people we're with?
1: It is the addiction. It is the, uh, the way it's just got a tie on us. Like I don't, there's nothing on Facebook or Twitter that I should care about more than interacting with my kids at the end of the day, but I still do it. Why? I don't know because it's there or heaven forbid you ignore that ding that comes when you get right. a text message.
2: Oh, right.
1: What is amazing is how quickly we can ignore the ringing of a phone. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that text message is still going to be there an hour from now. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's and- not
2: going anywhere.
1: Uh, But if a a text goes off, I am like I'm going to crawl out of my skin if I don't check it. And that's just we I think it just goes to the nature of of how our phones work with us. And yeah, I think it it goes to just we've been conditioned to check these things whenever there's a moment of quiet or a moment of downtime. Uh, And our kids see that and they're affected by it It says something to our children.
2: All right. Well, let's end on a positive note today, Brian. What words of encouragement would you give to people in order to have them put down their phones and increase their positive connection
1: with other people? Throw your phone out the (laughs) window. I think it's this. And again, I'm speaking conviction to me as much as anything. here. This is not a point of finger. People have times where your phone is not even near you. Uh, have a shelf you put it on during dinner time or from, uh, I read somewhere somebody was tweeting ironically and they said <laughs> one of the things they've had to do is the last time they check their phone at night is at six o'clock. Mm, and then they put it great. on. I, I'm not sure I could do that right yeah. now, but then they put it away. What are the things that are causing you? to uh, To run to your phone, run to your computer, whatever else, at the detriment of personal connection with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, or whatever, and start building some um, frameworks, some guards around those. That's what I would suggest. Yeah,
2: that's a good, good encouragement for all of us. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us today. We hope you feel encouraged to put down that device and focus on the people you care about so that they feel loved and seen. Be sure to join us tomorrow from 4 to 6 for more common good. For Brian Fromm, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life.